Good morning, Twitter. I'm Hayes Brown. This is Stephanie McNeil, and it's Thursday on AM to DM. Yes, happy Thursday. Okay, if you've been looking at your Twitter timeline, all I'm seeing this morning is Brexit. Tweets about Brexit, mm -hmm. memes about Brexit. Mm -hmm. So obviously I understand the basics of Brexit, right? Everything that happened in 2016, but I am no expert. Luckily I am here with an expert. Hayes, you are our deputy world news editor. Allegedly, yes. Allegedly, so they say. And so I was hoping that you could take on a little challenge for mm -hmm. me because I want to be informed. I want to know all about Brexit, mm -hmm. but I only want to hear the cliff notes. Okay. So my challenge for you, uh -huh. can you explain this new Brexit drama to me in 60 seconds? I believe I can do this. Okay. I think I can do this. Ready? Yes. Go. Okay, so back in 2016, Britain voted to leave the European Union, and this was a big deal. Theresa May took over as Prime Minister, promising, I will get Brexit done. Even though she hadn't really campaigned on the issue, so people were very skeptical. Since then, she's had to deal with a hardline Brexiters on one side, and people who want a softer Brexit, so having a still a trade deal with the EU on the other side. She's been caught right in the middle. She tried to have elections last year to bump up her majority, but those went terribly for her. So she's been in a really weak position with the European Union. Last night, she finally got her cabinet to sign off on a tentative deal with the EU that they wanted to go in a couple of weeks. But this morning, people started resigning, saying, nope, we don't like this after all, including her EU minister. So that's not great for Theresa May. What does this mean? Well, maybe we'll have an election if Theresa May's support collapse. Maybe we won't have a Brexit after all, which is something that Theresa May kind of hinted at. What matters really is, though, that there is a kind of deal, but whether or not the EU actually speak on it, that remains to be seen. Wow, I still have time left? I got through a lot really fast. <laughs> You had like five minutes to go. That was so impressive. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm sure I missed something, but those are the cliff notes. Go to buzzfeednews.com. I honestly, read out I more. took a whole class that was all about the European Union in my IR degree. I learned so much more from that 60 seconds. Take that, yeah, USC, suck it, suck right? Suck it, USC. <laughs> okay, well, whew, we have a lot to get through t today, so let's just dive right in. Here's a tweet from breaking news reporter Brianna Sachs. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke called the campfire, which practically destroyed the town of Paradise, worse than any war zone I saw in Iraq. Bree joins us now from Paradise, where his, the historic campfire has killed at least 56 people and burned more than 10,300 structures. Bree, thank you so much for coming on so early in the morning to talk to us. No problem. Hey, guys. So where are you right now? I'm in the uh, breakfast room of Best Western, um, which there are some families here who evacuated about an hour and a half from uh, Paradise and uh, about 45 minutes from Chico, which is like kind of the main center where, you know, thousands of people are now displaced. So what's the situation like there right now? What is like the scene? Um, well, right here, it's, it's pretty quiet. It's extremely smoky. Um, the air is, is still a major, major issue. In, in Chico, about 40 minutes away, you know, that's where all these these people have been um, camped out in a Walmart parking lot because, like, shelters are full. So people who are getting hotel rooms, like, that's, it's, it's kind of a lucky and a, a rare thing is what I've found, you know, talking to people. And, it's tough because a lot of people also lost their cars. So that's mm. that's an issue is they can't really get around. Um, so it's uh, it's hard. It's really hard. If people lost their cars as well as their home, how did they even evacuate? Um, that's a good question. I, I actually have some some evacuees I met at breakfast um, and they their houses were one of the first to go. 
and they had a you know kind of a harrowing um, experience getting out. And um, I'm going to introduce you to them if, if that's okay, and they can kind of tell you a little bit more about it from their firsthand perspective. Please, yeah, go definitely for it. go for it. Okay, there you go. I'm going to like move around here. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, you guys want to introduce yourselves? I'm John Wilkes. It's my new wife, Catherine. And um, if you wanted to tell them kind of what it was like uh, leaving paradise. Well, of course, it's just the shock of one moment your life is normal and you see a fire on the hill and the next thing the entire mountain is aflame and there was no choice made but to flee and all you can do is just literally buy the, there was so little time that all you can pretty much do is for us old people grab our medications and throw them in the car and leave uh we took some bedding with us not knowing what would happen whether it would bypass us or destroy the house and 15 minutes later our house was gone it was after we left and could you tell them about like what the difficulty getting out like the roadway which is why people's cars burned it was very dark it was it was just black and there was explosions everywhere and embers were flying all through the air. I don't believe that the police really were prepared for anything of this level of devastation or speed. It was upon them as quickly as it was upon us. So they had some trouble getting organized to get traffic out. Once they did, we all started flowing down both lanes of Skyway. Um, uh, all downhill and out of the fire. It was so, just so fast. But for a while, it took the police a while to unclog the the, the passageway out, and so we were left uh, sitting there in traffic in complete darkness and embers. They turned to night right in front of us, and the, the air was full of flying flames. It was terrifying. Yeah, so you can kind of hear, you know, what this is what thousands of people went through, you know, in a matter of 20 minutes. That's how fast the fire moved. That is extremely harrowing. Um, I want to highlight, though, another tweet from you, Bree. You said, Paradise was a disaster waiting to happen. Years and years ago, we knew we had a problem with that community, a California fire chief said. They prepared, but the fire moved more than twice as fast as it was predicted under the worst scenarios. What made this fire just so deadly? Um, sure. So I'm moving back to the, the best Western is now my office, the best Western office. <laughs> um, so the, this fire, you know, fire officials said, um, as, as fires in California have become like the norm is the wind really rushed it through this very dry vegetation and it just exploded because of like what it was, what it was feeding on. And up here, you know, there it's uh, paradise is in kind of the foothills of the the Sierra, so it's just it's just kind of covered in fire food, mm -hmm. basically. So um, and there's four, I think, four or five ways out for like twenty six thousand people, and these roads are really narrow. So they tried to evacuate, and they just kind of ran out of time. So, the, so the fire was just much more devastating to this this town, and you know, life loss of life than than we've seen in uh, the past. Yeah, it sounds like such a scary situation. And please thank you, the evacuees, for coming on our show and talking to us. Of course. I wonder what is the next step? We have so many people displaced now. I saw photos and videos you had shared last night on Twitter of people literally camping out, like you said, in a Walmart parking lot. How long have they been out of their homes and what is the next step? 
So a lot of those people were, have been there since Saturday. And, you know, I was, um, as I was talking to, uh, them at breakfast, they don't know, you know, they're taking it really minute by minute here. And they, you know, they have, a ho- they have a hotel room for a few days and then it's kind of like, they don't know what's, what's next because, you know, they're still looking for, for bodies in, in paradise. There's like 130 people still missing. So, and that's, it's taking, it's a painstaking process. So they don't know when they'll be able even to go home. They don't know if they want to go home. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's kind of like you're frozen, I think in, in time and on jobs anymore a lot of these people are retired so their entire life way of life is gone well that is so much and again be sure to thank the evacuees for us and thank you so much for joining yeah, us. yeah i will Bri. i'm gonna go back and, and uh, finish breakfast with them so all right thank you brie yeah no problem thanks guys the New York Times dropped a massive story on Facebook on Wednesday. Times reporter Shira Frankel tweeted, This story has been six months in the making. It started with a question. What happened inside Facebook over the last three years? And what did top executives, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, do in the wake of crisis after crisis battering the company? Here to talk us through just what she and four of her colleagues found is Shira herself. Good morning, Shira. Hi, Hayes. First of all, it's really good to see you. It's been a while <laughs> since you uh, moved to the Times from BuzzFeed News. We uh, miss you. We miss you. <laughs> all we miss right. you guys. For those who haven't had time to get through this massive piece yet, how would you sum up Facebook executives' response to all the crises it faced? Um, I think we had it in a tweet that sort of surmised it pretty well. It was how Facebook executives decided to deny, deflect, Mm -hmm. and then sort of lawyer up um, in the wake of crisis after crisis that hit Facebook. So So, when did Facebook first learn about the Russia influence campaign? You guys have a more definitive answer on that now, right? Yeah, and that was one of the main questions we wanted to answer in the story. I think myself, along with the other, along with a lot of other reporters, um, had been told for for ages by Facebook that it was a slow process; it happened bit by bit, and that's never really been a satisfying answer. So, what we now know is that in March of um, of, of 2016, Alex Samos on the security team was first brought evidence by someone on his team that saw sort of like murmurings, is the way he described it. I think. Um, of um, of Russian interference, and that was in the that was in the form of a Russian hacker that they were following that was kind of poking around accounts associated with the presidential campaigns. Flash forward months later, and Facebook starts to see um, Russian accounts again. These are accounts that they're following, they're kind of watching, and they're starting to feed information to reporters from hacked emails uh, from the Democratic campaign. And so they know something weird is happening. They know a bigger influence campaign is happening. And then Stamos decides that he's going to task part of his team with looking for Russian interference on the platform. And almost immediately, they begin to find stuff. The you know election's called, Trump wins, and then he hears Mark Zuckerberg go up on a stage and say, you know, it's a crazy idea that Facebook, that Russians tried to influence Americans through the elections. And he really quickly realizes that Mark didn't have a sense of what his team was finding and what was actually happening on the platform. So a lot of anger came out, you know, after the t- Mark Zuckerberg went up to the Hill and had those hearings and after the Cambridge Analytica connection was brought forward where people learned about just how much of their data had been sucked up for use in the campaign. But then we get this ad campaign where Zuckerberg tells us, we get it, we understand. How did that actually come about? Whose idea was that? And was that like emblematic of Facebook's response overall? 
I think so. I mean, I think they had a PR department that was so eager to move forward and so eager to kind of declare crisis over, problem averted, we're, we're on your side and we understand and everything's going to be better. And so they really kind of created this message. And, you know, executives like Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg delivered it. And I think from their end, they really kind of, they really believed that everything was done and that they could, they could push people forward and that mm-hmm. people were going to inherently believe that they were a good company, that they were good people and that they, they wanted, you know, to make amends and move forward with everything. So someone else that is pretty mad about everything is George Soros, whose name kind of got dragged into this. We saw an aide for him responding to Facebook this morning. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, poor Soros. At this point, he's, what is he not dragged into? Um, (laughs) So Soros has kind of become the boogeyman in a lot of ways for all things uh, Jewish conspiracy. And in this case, this was an agency that Facebook was um, working with called the Definers. And they pushed this idea that Soros was funding a lot of the anti-Facebook groups. Um, and I think that part of our article was interesting to people because it, it showed sort of the underhanded methods that was used by the Definers on behalf of Facebook. I will note, by the way, that last night Facebook sent us an update to say that they've now ended their relationship with the Definers and they will no longer be working with them. Well, Interesting. Now they're ended their relationship. <laughs> now that it's come out. Well, it's yeah, not not two weeks ago when we first started speaking to them about items in this article. Mm. Right. Exactly. Well, it's been a fascinating window into the monster that owns us all and soon will own the whole world. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Shira. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Later on, we're going to the district to talk Michael Avenatti's arrest and more. But first, it's your fire tweets. Welcome back to AM to DM. We got some great fire tweets for you lined up. Stephanie, want to kick us off? I don't even have anything else to say. I just need to get to these tweets. Here we yeah, go. Let's go. All right. Frank Lotion tweeted. <laughs> so silly. Hearing yourself singing on Snapchat at a concert has to be one of the worst feelings. I mean, I get that. I we are on t we are on here all the time, and I still like feel that about my own voice. So yeah. just when you're wa- hearing yourself sing along, you're like, ooh problems. I actually try to start when I'm doing like when I'm at a concert or like, you know, friends singing karaoke or something, not recording it. Cause it's like, I'm never going to watch this video again. I don't want to see myself at a concert singing. Like, wow. It just doesn't Bold matter. take in this 2018 out know. here. I don't, it's just like, enjoy it. You can take photos or whatever, but like, all right. Yeah, true. All right. Next tweet. We got Mr. Wylan who tweeted, uh, aliens probably ride past earth and lock their doors. That's the true fact. We are basically the South Central of the universe, is my guess. Like, oh no, humans, click. Yeah, it's like at this point, they don't even want to visit us anymore. So Pass. Yeah, hard pass. (laughs) All right. Calvin Andre tweeted, bro, is it just me or did daylight savings hit harder this year? Like, I'd be sleepy at 7 p.m. I'm gonna say, Calvin, no, it did not. I think you're just getting old. Wow, shots fired. I, it, it sucks every I'm, year. I'm with you, Calvin, because I have been like, okay, to 6.30, it is time for me to crawl into the covers. Yeah, especially when you get up at, what, how early to get 5.45? Many, many hours ago at this point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, A Trappa tweeted, mm. It's cold out. Check on your friend that wears the H&M bomber as a winter coat. Helpful PSA right there. Yeah, 
I feel like that might be one AM to DM host, Isaac Fitzgerald. I saw him tweeting about that this morning. Mm -hmm. Not to call you out, Isaac, but didn't you grow up in like Boston? Why don't you have a coat? Get a full coat, kid. Cover those thighs. <laughs> I had the, my first winter here from California. I had a coat that went all the way down to the floor. Love and I, that. I wore it, and I Fashion. did not care. I did not care. Fashion. Fashion statement. All right. Beaudry Williams tweeted at the bar. Oh, this is a funny meme. My brain. Don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Me. Who wants to do a tequila shot? Oh man, that's my brain at like maybe 22. It's been a minute since that voice has chimed in for me. I was here pressure and taking a vodka shot this weekend. Dude, not Oh jeez, I smelled vodka recently. I was like, why did I ever like this? 31 kids, it's real. I'm trying to hang with the kids, I don't know. Okay, well next up, we got your tweet of the day and it comes to you from Tinder Roni. Let's do this. I did the Dougie at a community service event today, and the kids yelled, okay, old school, wow, I wanted to die on the spot. Yeah, Jesus so the Dougie Christ, was like kids. really big when I lived in New York in college, a summer in right? college, and I guess that was almost 10 years ago. I've taught so many how to Dougie in my day, and now you're telling me that I'm an old? I hate uh, this. I hate this so much. It can't so be much. true. I hate the Gen Z's. Okay, coming up, Hayes will sit down with Peppermint. It'll be so exciting, but up next, we are going live from the district. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Nidhi Prakash. Good morning, Nidhi. Hi, good morning. So good to see you. Let's quickly touch on the big news of last night. Here's a tweet from ABC News. I have never struck a woman. I will never strike a woman. After being released on bail, Michael Avenatti says he is confident that I will be fully exonerated. <sighs> what do we know about this whole incident? So we don't know a whole lot so far. What we know is that he was booked on felony domestic violence uh, charges yesterday. Um, it's unclear really who filed those charges or what's going on because his estranged wife released a statement shortly afterwards saying that she wasn't at his apartment uh, when that call went in and that she hasn't known him to be violent um, throughout the duration of their relationship. Uh, another former ex another ex-wife of his came forward and also said that she hadn't known him to be violent, but we don't really know anything more about the, what that incident involved um, or who it involved at this point. So weird thing this morning, I saw on the timeline that Michael Avenatti himself tweeted out that he blames Jacob Wall for this. Have you seen this? I just saw it, yeah. It's unclear where he's getting that from, but yes, that, that he's putting that out there, I guess. Cool. Just throwing it out just there. Throw just it out see there. if it sticks. Well, let's move on to something a bit more substantive <laughs> right now. Let's take a look through our good friend Paul McLeod's timeline last night. Here he is at 4.20 p.m. Here's our story. Mitch McConnell just blocked a bipartisan bill to protect Robert Mueller. And here he is a mere hour later, updated with a lot of Flakian drama. Jeff Flake is vowing to block all of Donald Trump's judicial nominees until he his Mueller protection bill gets a vote. Nitty, what what is going on? Please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, this is Jeff Flake kind of pulling, I guess, maybe one of the few uh, 
power cards that he has left at this point, which is to threaten to block judicial nominations. Um, so that's something that he can block in the Judicial Committee because he's kind of the swing vote on that committee. Um, it could still go to the floor of the Senate, but that would be kind of, you know, basically bypassing uh, the, set, the committee altogether, which is something that is not done very often and is kind of frowned upon. Well, then what's the status of the Mueller bill right now, then? Uh, is it going to actually get a vote, then, with this threat? So, hard to say how it's going to play out, but we know that it's passed the Judicial Committee back in April, um, so it could go to the floor now. Um, McConnell is holding it up, and he said repeatedly that it, he will not allow it to go to a vote. Um, if it does, it seems pretty likely that it will pass. So there's no chance that McConnell is going to let this go to a vote, or do you think he could be pressured into it? You know, it's really hard to say. I know that what, what we do know is that these judicial appointments have been a priority for him and a priority for the president, uh, and that they're pushing them through as fast as they can, basically. Um, so, you know, I mean, this is a substantial threat if, you know, it seems like he can actually hold it up. Um, I guess we'll find out pretty soon whether McConnell is, McConnell is willing to completely bypass the Judicial Committee, which would be a, a big move to make. Why is he being so stubborn about this bill? It's a big question that's on my mind, at least. I mean... It does, is there a chance that it will actually become law if it does pass the Senate? So if it passes the Senate, I guess, you know, the next step would be that the president would have to sign it into law. Uh, given that it's a bill that does curtail his powers, um, it's unclear whether he would do that. Um, you know, I mean, I think that it's fairly unlikely that he would sign it, but who knows what could happen. There could be all kinds of other pressures that push him in that direction. We don't know for sure. Who knows what could happen? That's... That's the story for 2018 right there. <laughs> Truth. Well, thanks so much, Nitty. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, here is a tweet from BuzzFeed News' Vera Bergengruen. Let's have, it, have at it, young soldiers. What's on your mind? Mattis jovially asked a group of soldiers deployed at the border today. They politely asked the defense secretary what they're doing there. That is such great color from the scene. It's like you can just see it in your mind. Vera joins us now to talk about Mattis's strange trip to the southern border. Good morning. Morning. So what was Mattis trying to accomplish on this trip? So, you know, the, of course, it, this was widely condemned as an you know, political stunt ahead of the election. And I think what it's, you know, Mattis was going to visit them and kind of prove that they're there to do an actual mission, that they're there to support Border Patrol, that this is legitimate. And, and by being there, he was kind of with uh, the uh, Homeland Def uh, Security Secretary, he was kind of going to just give it legitimacy. And so I think he was going to, you know, just meet with soldiers and have a bunch of photos taken and kind of, you know, of him surveying the scene. And so I, that was the main purpose of this trip. So what, how, first of all, how weird was it that this thing was fully live streamed? There was like a 30 minute live stream that right. you and I both were watching, like what is happening? <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty weird, especially if you know Mattis, because he avoids the cameras like nobody's business. He does not like being on camera. Um, I think he's had maybe a handful of um, on-camera, uh, you know, briefings at the Pentagon, and he usually just gives these brief statements. So he was on his plane on the way there, and he read this kind of, you know, short, you know, one-minute statement up a piece of paper to reporters. And then there was this whole 30-minute, you know, very candid kind of 
uh, live stream by the Pentagon pool camera, and he was, you know, you could it caught all of his small talk and how he talked to soldiers, and it kind of caught a very different side of him that I don't think we see very often. That made him actually sound much more like a member of the Trump administration than the image we usually see. So it was weird. It was open to press. It's not like this was a hidden camera, but uh, I don't. I'm not sure he necessarily knew that it was being live streamed the way it was because he. It was definitely a very different version of him. Uh, it seemed. It's interesting. I wonder if the move to be a little more transparent or be on TV is maybe some pressure from the administration as well. So, but the vibe I'm getting from this is that the troops don't know why we're down there as much as some of us don't know why they're down there. Is that correct, you think? Right. And I mean, you know, a lot of what came through this, you know, they follow orders. They're told to you're part of an engineering unit. You're part of, you know, whatever unit you're with. And you're told to go down there and do your job. And, and that's how the military works. But, you know, uh, they were specifically, for example, told to put in all this wire. And so they put on the wire. And so when Mattis actually opened up to questions, most of them were pretty bland. They were asking, you know, what's your favorite thing about, you know, being a Marine and all these different things. But then, you know, somebody basically asked, you know, do we have to take down all this wire? We spend like a month putting up when we leave in a month which was kind of a strange moment and you could see Mattis was caught a little bit off guard and he said we'll let you know and then they basically asked you know what are the short and the long-term goals here which you know was a very polite way of saying what are we doing here and he didn't really have an answer for them he said short term put in the obstacles the wire which is only a you know only really applies to some of those troops and then he said long term you know it's somewhat to be determined and launched into this whole thing about immigration, which was very unusual for him. Again, um, it's not something we usually see from him, and it made him sound much more like a member of the Trump administration. Do we know yet how much this is all going to cost in the end? Like, do we know have a number for that yet? No, we keep asking. Um, they say it's still being determined. Same as, you know, the, the, the numbers of troops in and out and the number of equipment that keeps fluctuating. And so they tell us that's their excuse for not giving us a number. Um, some independent organizations, I think I've put the number at around 220 million, but it's likely to be way more because, um, you know, when Obama and uh, Bush sent the National Guard in, it was way more than that um, overall. And this is a massive deployment. It's up to 7,000 troops. Um, so hopefully we'll have that soon, but I think they're going to kind of uh, wait on that and not give us the number for a while. I want to go back to when you said he was talking about immigration, because he said some kind of things that people on the timeline thought were a little odd, right? He gave this story about his mother <laughs> coming as an immigrant to this country, but she was an infant and she came from Canada. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. Um, and that was kind of an interesting moment, again, where, um, you know, it, it showed us how he usually talks to troops or how he justifies things um, in a way that we usually don't see as candidly. But he, he um, you know, he, he this was part of the question when he was asked about the long-term goals. And you could kind of tell that the troops were kind of, look, you know, he, he kind of got defensive and, and went into why they have to be there in order to kind of stem illegal immigration. And that's when he kind of pulled out this thing. And he said, you know, which is also a very common, uh, one of Trump's very, uh, talking points a lot of the time, which was, you know, we want legal immigration, we like legal immigrants, this is unfair to legal immigrants, um, and so on and so forth. And as part of that, he said uh, that his mother had immigrated to the U.S. and that, uh, you know, she had talked to him about how difficult it was to come to the U.S., which, you know, we don't know the back, I don't know the backstory of his family, whether it was difficult or not, but his mother was an infant, and he's said that many times in the past, and including his confirmation hearing, that his mom was an infant when uh, she came in from Canada to the U.S. So it kind of seemed like a bit, you know, that kind of raised some eyebrows as well. Um, it seemed like a kind of strange thing to bring up and a little bit of a, of a reflex, a little bit of a defensive um, kind of answer when asked what they're doing there. That makes sense.
Well, I certainly think this whole thing is extremely interesting. I wish we had a live stream on the soldiers at the border at all times, mm -hmm. just to <laughs> capture what's going on. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> but thanks so much, Vera, for giving us the update on this. Thank you. Up next, Amber sits down with director Jason Reitman. Stay tuned. Jamison, I'm joined now by Jason Reitman, director of Juno, Up in the Air, Tully and more. His new film, The Front Runner, is about 1988 presidential candidate Gary Hart's failed attempt to win the White House. Hello. Hello. Thank you for coming. We appreciate it. I love being here. So I want to ask you, what drew you to the story of Gary Hart now? Well, yeah, I, I was young enough that when this happened, uh, I, you know, uh, I was only kind of aware of the names. It was only a few years ago. I was listening to a Radiolab podcast. And I heard the story, I just couldn't believe that there was this moment in our recent history when the presumed next president wound up in his alleyway in the middle of the night with these other journalists and nobody knew what to do, no one had ever been there before. And he went from being the next president of the United States to leaving politics forever in less than a week. It had all this connective tissue with right. all the things we're asking Similar about today, things that too. we've been seeing. Yeah, all those things about, like, you know, what is a public life, what is a private life, you know, what is the relationship between journalists and politicians, and obviously gender politics. It brought up all kinds of things that I know everyone is trying to talk about today, and they're certainly on our, uh, my mind. Well, that's one thing that I wanted to ask you about. I'm a breaking news reporter, mm -hmm. and in some ways I sort of think, you know, you also tell stories, people's stories. Yeah. Um, similar way to journalism. How did this film change your mind, or did it change your mind, about what access the public should have uh, to, you know, the lives of, of public figures? That's a great question, and, and look, uh, I'm not sure if it changed my mind, but I, I go into every movie with questions. I mean, that's why I make movies and I, I feel fortunate that I get the chance to, you know. Uh, uh, I go into each one with some kind of something I want to chew on mm -hmm. and the movie becomes this opportunity to try to kind of figure it out. And on this one, certainly one of the things on my mind is what is relevant? You know, it's not about almost, it's, it's not as much about access, it's more about the rest of us. It's the voters, right. it's the constituents, trying to figure out who these people are. And at some point we decided around this time we want to know who these candidates are as human beings. And of course, the next question is, all right, what do you want to know? And that's something that we've been trying to figure out. And it's really hard to talk about that in 2018 because you do go on Twitter, and if you say the wrong word, you can get your head ripped off, yeah. right? The volume's at a 12 right now. So by dialing it down, back down to like a six, you go to 1987, you get a guy who was like infinitely electable, handsome, charming, Kennedy-esque, great ideas, really smart, uh, who also was a human being who made human mistakes. Mm. And uh, and it kind of becomes this litmus test of what kind of flaws are we actually willing to put up with in our leaders? And did it feel like this sort of moment where, you know, there's this big scandal that happens, did it feel like a moment where the relationship between the press and politicians and the public changed? Uh, well, I think it was uh, a moment where tabloid journalism and political journalism kind of drove in the same lane. Mm -hmm. and, and you have to kind of remember the moment also for like, so for, for 1987, this is coming right after the birth of the satellite truck, which kind of creates the 24-hour news cycle. Mm -hmm. This is the moment that a current affair becomes a television show. So right. you have this kind of leap from like tabloid press to actual tabloid television. This, you know, two years later, Ben Bradley, the editor of The Post, the guy, you know, from All the President's Men and The Post would say, look, if television news is covered something and other newspapers are covering something how does the Washington Post not cover it right. and that I think that really means something if you don't have that editorial control I, I'm like everyone else you know like I wake up in the morning can I swear on this show yeah I wake up in the morning I, everyone does this you pull out your phone and you just go you look up the news app and you go 
fuck, right? I mean, that's yeah. how we start our days. And and then you in the news app, you see there'll be like a story on the midterms, mm -hmm. and then right next to it, from the same source, given equal weight, is a story on Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson breaking up. So and you do read BuzzFeed. And they're like both labeled analysis, <laughs> and it's like, wait a second. There's this kind of uh, merge of entertainment and politics, mm. and as the author of the book on Gary Hart likes to say, you know, once those two things merge, you're bound to get an entertainer as a candidate or as a president. Interesting. Well, your first feature film, Thank You for Smoking, was also kind of about the political world. How has that, how has your view of politics and the political world changed since then? I mean, I, my first, like, I wrote Thank You for Smoking when I think when I was 22. Okay. So, <laughs> so things have changed. Those are the words of an <laughs> asshole, right? I mean, that's who we are when we're 22. So I, I, I was much more libertarian. I was much more cynical. Yeah. And I think, yeah, let's make a movie where the, you know, the hero is the head lobbyist for big tobacco. Right. Uh, and, I, and I still love that film and I love that book. Um, but it was also made in a different moment, you know? Look, even The Front Runner was written at the end of the Obama administration. Mm. It's just a different time. And I think we wrote it with a sense of irony uh, that is very different, you know, just three years later. You know, over the course of making this film, there was the presidential election uh, and there was the birth of the Me Too movement. And it, a, a movie can be a living, breathing thing. And it changes with the audience. It changes with the world outside. Well, we're a Twitter show, mm -hmm. so I have to ask you about your Twitter bio. Yes. Which says, Brownstone Boy number two, Ghostbuster, Ghostbusters 2. Yes. So what was it like to be directed by your dad, Ivan? I will give you one worse. In Kindergarten Cop, mm -hmm. my father directed my first kiss. <laughs> no. no, that's terrible. No, that's true. We did ten takes of my first kiss. Was it romantic? No, I was a kid. I was like making out with this girl in Kindergarten Cop. You, you, have you seen Kindergarten Cop? Yes. Yeah, so there's a scene where like Arnold runs into a teacher's lounge and I'm making out with this girl, my first kiss, and and he's like, what are you doing in here? And I, and I go and I say something like, oh, we thought it was another fire drill. And he's like, get out of here. And then we like run out. And... And so we do 10 takes, then I walk out, and then this film crew that I've known my whole life is like patting me on the shoulder, like, way to go, kid. And it's like, <laughs> that was my first kiss. That's horrible, I'm sorry. At least we stopped at first kiss. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, Dan Aykroyd mentioned that there is a new uh, original scri script for the original Ghostbusters crew. Do you know anything about that? I don't. I am not, you know, uh, you have to ask my dad about no, that. That's fine. Well, you grew up in a Hollywood family. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Me Too movement. How have you seen the industry change in the last year? Oh, I mean, well, we're listening to women. We're listening to women, and that's really important. Uh, and, you know, I'm, uh, I was on a board inside the academy uh, two years ago when we had the first kind of class that was 50-50 men and women, and uh, you there's a lot more women directing movies, a lot more women directing television shows, and, uh, and it's, it's wonderful. We all benefit when we have more diverse voices. Right. Uh, I think companies benefit when their board of directors has more diverse voices. Uh, filmmaking crews and cast benefit when there's more diverse voices. Uh, and look, I'm obviously someone who's in love with women's stories, um, and I try to tell them. And uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I like the way that things are changing. Well, I want to ask you one thing regarding, you know, your movie's about political upsets. There was plenty of them in the midterms. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to present you with three scenarios of upsets that happened during the midterms. Okay. Tell me which one would be the best movie to make. The best movie. Okay, yeah. got it. All right. Number one, mm -hmm. Dennis Hoff, who was the brothel owner who died and then still won election <laughs> well, in Nevada. I think a key factor is how he died, uh, but let's, all right, got it. 
Two, Sharice Davids, the mm -hmm. first Native American right, right, woman, right. openly gay, Kansas representative, and an MAA fighter. God, that's going, that's going to be hard to beat. And three, yeah. Paul Gozar, yeah. who's the representative from um, Arizona, who was just re-elected despite six of his eight siblings making hate ads against right. their brother, calling I, on people not to vote. I heard about that. Oh, God, that's really tough, right? I mean, because... Okay, as far as main characters go, mm -hmm. it's number two, okay. right? Native American uh, MMA fighter uh, going into Congress, and you're just kind of hoping she's just going to kick some ass in there. Yeah. Uh, that said, with the third one, imagine casting all those characters and making all those hate ads. Uh, this is a tough one. All right. For diversity's sake, I'm going with number two. Mm, who would you cast? Oh, God, that's a great question. Who do you cast as that? I think you have to go with an unknown, right? Like, I think that's the way to do that. Because you certainly don't want to cast an actress who is not Native American, and, uh, yeah. That's the correct answer. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, a white guy. I think you cast a white guy. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I'll go out on that. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for having me. The Front Runner is in select cities now and opens everywhere November 21st. Up next, we're talking about how your home could be underwater by 2050. Oh, great. <laughs>
2050, and that's in the ideal scenario or what we call the medium emission scenario in our map, where we're actually taking some aggressive response to climate change. So one of the most interesting things about this data, though, is these areas are in some of the wealthiest communities in the country. They're in the most high demand because beachfront property is so it's everyone wants to live at the beach, right? So why aren't buyers taking climate change into consideration? Do they just not think about it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we got some hints by talking with a bunch of real estate agents, you know, in some of these high risk areas. So it does seem like climate change rising seas aren't really front of mind. Maybe people aren't thinking about it at all. There are people asking a bunch of questions about what flooding risk is like today. So has this area seen a flood or what's the cost of flood insurance? But that's not really translating to, okay, how could that risk go up? Um, It might just be they're thinking, well, it's not going to happen to me. Or, you know, there are a lot of folks that talk about staying in a home or wanting to buy a home for 30 years, but they may in reality actually leave after five to 10 years. So one real estate agent kind of described it to me as perhaps it's like music chairs and we'll see when the music stops or when a flood hits what's the actual home or who's owning the home when the flood hits that's so interesting so what can home okay I don't own a beachfront property I don't know if you do but let's say that we in our dreams we both owned beach fair to assume I do not <laughs> let's say we both own a beachfront home what can home buyers do in this scenario? You know, if you have this really valuable piece of property that you're realizing could be a real big risk. Yeah, so that's a great question. And there are some steps that homeowners can take. And in fact, you are starting to see them come into effect, like in places along the New York or New Jersey. New Jersey coast that were hit by Sandy when homes had to kind of build back or respond to damages, one of the big things is literally raising it. So putting them on stilts or having the front door be higher. Um, Another thing kind of tied to that, I spoke with one resiliency expert uh, in Boston and he was saying, you know, in New York, a huge problem with Sandy was basements or that lower level flooding. And that's where you can have a ton of your wires, you know, your power source. And so one thing they're trying to transition to is with new homes, bringing those critical infrastructure up to the roof or higher up in a home. And those are things you can look for when you're buying a home or that maybe you can kind of invest in yourself. But another thing, you know, in terms of protecting an entire area, not just your home, those are actions that cities can take. And one thing that Miami Beach, for example, is doing, which already sees you know, frequent flooding just due to heavy rain events, is they've installed really expensive pumps and they're also rising entire streets. But that's something a city can do. That's one of the more expensive areas that's tanking it on. And it will be interesting to see how cities um, that don't necessarily have that kind of same wealthy tax base respond to this threat in the coming decades. Yeah, I mean, I will say it is encouraging to hear that a city like Miami that is so big, even though, yet, like you say, it is so you know, wealthy, obviously, is taking this seriously. And maybe we can hope that this will, you know, start to happen in the next decade before, you know, it's too late. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sara. And check out her story to figure out if you're in the flooding zone. Up next, Hayes sits down with Peppermint. Welcome back. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Peppermint, RuPaul's Drag Race Season 9 first runner-up and one of the stars of Head Over Heels on Broadway. Good morning, Pep. Hey, babe. <laughs> so, Head Over Heels uh, is an adaptation of a pastoral romance from the 16th century featuring the music of the Go-Go's. I think yes. I had a fever dream like that once. Oh, I think I have too. <laughs> Haven't we all? For if I was in it. <laughs> For those who haven't met, had the chance to come up to Broadway and see it yet, can you do your best to describe the show? Yes. The sh Head Over Heels <laughs> is about love, sex, mm -hmm. danger, excitement, has the music of the Go-Go's, fabulous talent, and it's on Broadway right now. Get your tickets. Get it. Okay, so your character in the show, Pythio, is identifies as non-binary plural. Did that draw you to the show, or was that something that was added after you were cast, and that's something that something developed? Uh, I think it, de it definitely developed. Mm -hmm. uh, the show, as, as most Broadway shows and most projects, kind of go through, went through a little bit of a transition on its own. Mm -hmm. And so I think this character, excuse me, um, kind of evolved and morphed as they realized how much there was to explore in the world of gender and, mm -hmm. and kind of some of the nuances that we're even um, di discovering today. And so when I came to the role, mm -hmm. it had already been established that okay. the character was non-binary and they were seeking um, anyone who might be able to bring some of their own experience, usually that's someone of trans experience or gender non-conforming experience to the role. So they were looking for a trans actor. And they found you and boom, great choice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in addition to singing on Broadway, you've been making your own music for years, including an EP in 2017. How do eight shows a week compare to actually recording a studio in the booth? You know, eight shows a week. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's recording is actually a little easier yeah? because you can go take after take after take. Mm -hmm. it's, but it's almost, it's all, at the same time, it's kind of excruciating because you know you're kind of trapped in the booth until you feel like it's perfect and you know nothing's ever perfect. Ever. So you're like, I'm not gonna eat or sleep until <laughs> this is ready! When and then you're like there. I get that note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, there's kind of, with live theater, you just have to go in, mm -hmm. leave it all on the stage. Sometimes it's that perfect combination. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is a horrible mess. <laughs> and you're like, well, sorry, folks, there's no refunds. <laughs> Not in this show. Not in this show, Never. clearly. Other shows, <laughs> other Broadway shows I'm describing right now. Just generally in the world of live theater. <laughs> so you were just named one of the Out 100. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you, it's so exciting. Why is it important to you that uh, you, as both an entertainer, that, that, sorry, why is it important to you that you both be an entertainer and you speak out on politics? Well, I think just as a person in the queer community, um, with the type of paths that so many of us have to take towards getting to our own authenticity mm -hmm. and our own truths, you end up being sort of an, an um, advocate and activist anyway. Mm -hmm. Just living in your truth, living out, sometimes that's in direct opposition to how people want you to be. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want, if you're a guy, they don't want you to be feminine. If you're a woman, they may not want you to be masculine. If you are any other expression, uh, people police this. Mm -hmm. And so the opposite of that or resisting that is just being who you are. Right. And that's 
I think that's really what all anyone wants to be. It's just their most, most authentic self. And so being trans and, hap and being a performer um, who's blessed to have the platform that I have, mm -hmm. I have no choice that, other than to kind of speak out and, and you know, fight for my community. All right, well, that is a wonderful message for everyone out there who's watching this. We have to shift gears a little, though, and talk some Drag Race. Oh my God, just in time! Just in time! Hit me, honey, hit me, darling. The lights are getting to you. So, I'm ready. first up, All Stars 4, were you asked to come on? Were you? Peppermint. I may or may not have been. And you But it wouldn't have mattered anyway, else. because I was on Broadway. Right. So if I hypothetically were asked, mm -hmm. then I would have had to say no, because I would have just been opening my Broadway show that same mm -hmm. time. So, so I couldn't have done it even if they had asked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, RuPaul and Drag Race have had a bit of a complicated history with trans contestants. Gia Gunn is competing on All Stars 4, and following in her footsteps is the second openly trans competitor. Do you think the show has evolved to a more accepting place at this point, or do you feel like this is a bit of a flash in the pan because you were already here? No, I think the more, look, you know, that's one of the things with people who are queer, um, and at this moment in time, it, ha it certainly happened with, it's still happening with African-American folks, it's happened with gay folks, and it's definitely happened with trans folks that anything we do is historic because right. there have been so many limitations on the opportunities that we've had. And so, you know, something like Drag Race, which is now so mainstream and, we, and the world has discovered its obsession that it has always had with drag. Clearly. Uh, you know, I think this is, it's the timing is just right. And, you know, it may not be the exact um, description for all of us. It may not be exactly what everyone wants or how everyone would describe progress and change, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. And then after, actually before Gia will premiere on the 14th, I think is when All Stars comes on, there's a Christmas special right. with Sonique and she's sure. trans and she's one of the first performers that I, that I know of to have come out mm -hmm. um, on, you know, since Drag Race. And so this is great. Now this, then the couple of seasons after me, they've already included more trans folk and I'm, you know, there's nowhere to go but up. So hopefully in the next season 11, maybe we'll see somebody. Have you, have you, did, have you reached out to either of them about the, to, about the experience of being trans on the show or do they reach out to you or just hands off for now? Uh, no, we haven't specifically talked about their experience on the show. I mean, All Stars and even this Christmas special is a little bit different because they're returning. Right. So they already kind of are established. Fair. And that's a very different scenario than you know, showing up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and nervous <laughs> as hell with your suitcase and not knowing what to expect as kind of a newcomer to the RuPaul family. And so, you know, I, I'm, I know that they were treated with respect. I know that they had the same experience all the other girls had. I can't say it was a good experience, yeah. I don't know. But it was the but same. But it was the same. Um, so I think what we're looking for is to see more uh, Types of, uh, types of drag performers, including trans performers, in an original season of mm -hmm. Drag Race, like an 11 or 12, a numbered right. season. Well, let's play a little game right now, oh Miss Peppermint, because you tweeted out that you couldn't possibly choose your favorite member ah! of All Stars Forecast, so we thought instead you could give us a few predictions. Are you ready for this? Okay, yes. Oh, okay. you're giving me choices? Oh, I'm giving you okay, choices. Okay, okay, give okay. me choice. Yep, so who is most likely to go home first? Oh my gosh, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. Uh, Give it to us. Oh my gosh, most likely to go home first. I don't know. 
because they're such a threat, I could see someone like Trinity Taylor mm -hmm. or even Latrice Royale going mm -hmm. first only because they're such a threat. Mm -hmm. And as we know in All Stars, it's not about the weakest link, it's right. about the biggest threat being sent home first. Who is most likely to have the biggest wardrobe there? The most, the biggest and most extensive wardrobe. Again, my money's on Trinity Taylor because oh she brings. She's this big. She her clothes. <laughs> she's never covered. She wears g-strings, right. so she can fit a million of those in a suitcase, and she can sew like nobody's business. Mm. So even if her stuff got lost on the way there, she'd have a whole new wardrobe before lunch. Least likely to share a wig with someone. Least likely to share a wig with someone. Like, hey, my wig is terrible oh my for gosh. this. Here, have mine. Least likely to do uh, that. I don't. I can't say any of those girls honestly mm -hmm. would would not share, mm -hmm. especially in all stars. They're really, I don't know. If maybe like, I don't know. No. All right. Skip. Okay. <laughs> most likely. I'm trying to get dragged on their internet. Uh, <laughs> most likely to forget lyrics while lip syncing. Well, we all know that one, don't we? We would say Valentina, mm -hmm. but um, I don't know. I guess we have to, you know there's gonna be something. They're gonna something like set sort of, something yes. up, I don't know. <laughs> Most likely to slay an acting challenge out of them. Most likely to slay, and I'd say Manila Luzon, mm. because she's so quirky and corny that she, I don't know, she just, she goes in with the full gusto every time. All right, and this one is particularly shady. Who is least likely to be Miss Congeniality? <laughs> you gotta answer, Pep. Oh, uh, name. Uh, Least likely, I forget who's on the show. Oh, you lie! <laughs> well, let me really quickly Manila, Manila Uzan, Latrice Royale, Gia Gunn, Jasmine Masters, Naomi Smalls, Pheromone, Valentina, Trinity Taylor. Naomi Smalls is not getting <laughs> congeniality. I love that girl. Right, but. That's my girl. But sh no one's giving her congeniality. Fair enough. Thank you so much, Peppermint, for taking the time and being here with us. You can see Head Over Heels on Broadway now. Up next, Steffi and I will respond to a few more of your tweets. Stay stick around, guys. Okay, I loved your interview with Peppermint. Oh, thank you. I have to shout out the tweet from Miss Jonesy who said that yes. Peppermint is giving a full grown chorus on the fan. Yeah. Ruth, just I need one whop, of those whop, fans. Whop, whop. As Amazing. soon as she sat down, she just started fanning. Practical and effective. Yeah. All right, well, we got a couple of tweets that we want to read out from you guys. In reference to our fire tweet about hearing yourself sing on Snapchat, Jonesy says, True fact, heard myself laughing and singing and generally carrying on while listening to an Annie DeFranco concert bootleg. I'm honestly not sure which part of this truth is the actual worst. <laughs> I totally get you. I mean, I have to listen to myself talk every single day and mm -hmm. listen to my horrid vocal fry. Oh, please. Please. We all, we all know it's there. We all know it's there. I just, I just say it's my accent. Whatever. <laughs> well, I called out Isaac about his winter coat during our fire tweets, and Jen says, call about Steph. Everyone tell Isaac to buy a coat. Yeah, can we do like a hashtag, like AM2Coat? It's really get not em. that hard. You can buy them for like 40 bucks at H&M. Oh, right? Just get out there, Isaac. Cover them thighs. Okay, you all loved my sit-down with Peppermint. Princess Leia says... Uh, Oh, this interview is giving me so much life, and this outfit! Heart eyes emoji. I also heart eyes Peppermint's outfit. Like, she came prepared today. I just loved, I just loved everything about it. It was so <laughs> great. So great. So great. I loved the interview. I loved the outfit. I love her. Wonderful. Perfect. All around. 
Well, thank you to our guests, Brianna Sachs, Shira Frankel, Nidhi Prakash, Vera Bergen-Gruen, Susan Reitman, Amber Jamison, Zara Hirji, and of course, Peppermint. Said and Detective Selvia Obel will be right here at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Bye, guys.